Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we shine a spotlight on the remarkable women who are building companies and technologies that transform the way we live and work. They are showing us why a female voice matters in the world of technology. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. Today's episode features Kate Adamson, product lead at Plaid, and Archie Agrawal, product lead at Amazon. We will be discussing how technology can be leveraged as a partner and connector for humans through machine learning, artificial intelligence, and financial technology. So Kate and Archie, I would love for you to tell us what the role of the product manager is, and then specifically tell us what each of you does in your specific role. So I'll start with the role of a product manager. I'm sure you've heard like a million definitions of what a PM does. Um, it varies company by company. It can even vary team to team within large companies. I would say that your job as a product manager is that you're a business owner of product and you deliver business impact while keeping customers in the front and center of everything. And then about, about myself, I'm a product lead at Amazon working on user-generated content moderation via human-in-the-loop machine learning. And then previously, I was at Microsoft building developer experience of the Microsoft Identity Platform. And then before we get, go into the rest of the q and just an obligated disclaimer, the views expressed here are just my own and not my employers. Great. Thank you for that. And Kate, what are you doing at Plaid? Yeah, so I am a product lead responsible for our credit product suite. Uh, I can elaborate more on what that means in a second, but... To answer the first question, which was sort of how we define product at Plaid, exactly as Archie described, that product is very different at different organizations. Um, there's different sort of product culture. It's kind of like business development that it can take on whatever form to like extend the culture of the engineering team or fit the needs of the product suite, whether it's B2B or B2C. And so our product culture is more on the side of the Amazon, I would say, where we're, we have, uh, we were, the origin of our group came from business operations. So effectively, how do we create more accountability and goal setting and, you know, uh, ex execution orientation from, for our engineers. So we became sort of embedded in group entrepreneurs for an engineer, an engineering team in order to maximize the impact of that engineering team. So what is it that we actually do? I mean, one is execution. I think that's a very straightforward, making sure that we set the right goals for the engineers and as it relates to product and as it relates to customer impact, as Archie mentioned. Um, two is strategy. So we don't wanna be like a feature factory where we just you know go down a long list of, oh, customer asked for this, customer asked for this, customer asked for this. We want to be prioritizing things that serve the overall, you know, vision of where this business is trying to go. And so a lot of what we're, what we're doing is setting a roadmap that reflects a long-term vision. So setting like, okay, this is what we, where we want to be in two years. So let's work backwards from there, or this is where we want to be in five years. So we need to start prioritizing these types of things and continuing to think on that, like multi-year or even multi-quarter horizon. Um, so execution strategy, and I'd say overall, like accountability and a point of contact for the product too, internally. On that note, speaking of sort of the overall vision of the company, not just products as features, 
Plaid's website says that the company is focused on democratizing financial services through technology. Can you explain what this means? Yeah, good question. Um, it, it, so our mission as a company is to, is to an unlock financial freedom for everyone. So part of our the product itself, just to reiterate in case those who aren't familiar with it, um, missed how Samantha sort of described it. It's a way to link your bank account to a website or an application. So if you're linking your bank account to, to Venmo, for example. And so our product is really designed to help people kind of shop around and try new financial applications and, and, and see which ones suit their needs and who can get them the best service and give them the best terms. Um, and create greater data portability of your bank account so that it, bank accounts or financial accounts can talk to each other. And you can sign up for a new one and then you can use that one somewhere else. So our, our small thing that we do, which seems like such a small little thing is like, you know, let applications talk to each other and the data portability associated with that actually unlocks consumer financial access and that you can then use your account in a lot of different places. So our, our, our mission is while we're a B2B company to helping apps talk to each other, our mission actually translates to consumers and helping consumers get access to financial freedom as we define it. So the article we read for today from Harvard Business Review talks about collaborative intelligence and how humans and machines are working together to solve problems. One example they give is AIDA, which is a customer service chatbot that actually answers about 70% of customers' questions and requests. The other 30% requires a human being to intervene. So can you give some examples of collaborative intelligence and action in a product you're working on? And Archie, specifically, I know you, you know, are working on human in the loop, compute, machine learning. Can you explain how that works in your area at Amazon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So every single one of our system is a result of like human machine collaboration. So right from like identifying the problem, there isn't like a machine identifying what are the biggest problems for Amazon to solve. It's probably like some product manager, some data analyst, some human trying to identify the problems. It starts there from there. Once you've identified the problem, you go into like training the model, identifying if it's the right fit to be a machine learning problem. And then from there, like you gather tons and tons of training data to actually then train the model. So all of this is done while a person is like in the front and center of the whole problem. And then once the model is trained, it then emits a result with a certain confidence level. And then to maintain the precision, humans aid the decision-making of the model. So for example, let's say it's like, the model predicts X, Y, and Z with medium confidence, or the model predicts this with like low confidence. So you could actually configure where you plug in humans into the whole equation to make sure you do right by the customer and maintain the highest level of precision. And then you're doing this with the Amazon stores or storefronts? Yeah, yeah. So, is that with the customer face, like customer facing, or is that with actual the store, the, the merchants? So it's both sides. Um, so I primarily work with book publishers um, within the Kindle Direct publishing service. And then the cost consumer side of it is like when you buy a book from Kindle store or when you browse for books in the Amazon store, um, something of that order. So if let's say 
let's say a book needs a certain warning that it's fit for like X, Y, and Z audience, that message itself could be surfaced via a machine learning model. And then you as a consumer would see it on the Amazon store. And then on the publishing side, if your, if your content is not in line with Amazon's content policies, then you might get a message saying that it has like X, Y, and Z, and you need to resubmit or you need to fix these errors and then come back to us later. And so the, the machine learning algorithm can flag, but there are certain pieces of content or data that are beyond the yeah the, yeah beyond the expertise of the 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 uh, mm-hmm. AI as of now is science fiction. An example that I always think about is Elon Musk in 2018 tried to replace humans with robots in his Tesla factories, and it was a disaster. And he actually said excessive automation of Tesla was a mistake. And he said, humans are underrated. So tell us, you know, both of you, and Kay, I'm interested in Plaid and how, you know, so much is being done by the machines and by the algorithms, but how are, how are the products that you're building at Plaid and Amazon being complemented or augmented through human processes and vice versa? I can start with one in particular that we're working on right now. So probably the most well-known use case is linking your bank account to fund an investment account or a peer-to-peer payment application. And and that's quite common. There's another very common use case where a person might need to provide their banking information. And that's if you're applying to rent an apartment or applying to buy a home um, and you need to verify your income. And income is one of those really tricky things that you can try to extrapolate from somebody's bank information, but isn't apples to apples. It's, you know, on your bank statement, you're receiving your income net of potential withholdings, 401k contributions, maybe you're paying for healthcare, maybe you're paying for life insurance, you know, employer-sponsored benefits that your bank statement doesn't see. There's also, it can be kind of misleading too, because if you're getting reimbursed from maybe an Amazon purchase that you just made and you decided, oh, I'm returning it and you get a reimbursement, that can look like income and that's not income. And so, you know, there's a certain amount of income detection from bank transactions, which is what this product does, that can be automated and standardized um, broadly. And then there are certain things that are edge cases and there are certain things that are just hard for a model to be able to detect. Um, And so something that we've done is that instead of just supplying that data to, you know, for a particular use case, like a mortgage lender that needs to verify your income, when when a consumer links their bank account, instead of just supplying that extrapolated detail, we actually provide that data back to the consumer. And this kind of goes back to our, you know, mission, which is, to unlock financial freedom for people, for consumers, is giving that data back to the consumer and saying, hey, we think this is your income, is that right? And then the consumer within our module can check or uncheck or edit or update the category of income. Oh, this was a a one-time bonus, this is not my salary and, and configure it right there and then pass it. So basically, I mean, it's kind of an example of human in the loop, but basically the the user ends up being able to like retrain and update our algorithm to correct for the error. Because we know we're not going to be right 100% of the time. And from a product perspective, we need to make sure what is our tolerance for being right. And in this case, 
we don't want to be wrong. So we present it back to the consumer. Also, in this case, from a product decision perspective, we know what our mission is and we want to tie back to the mission, which is unlock financial free freedom for people. And so making sure that the people have the freedom and the control to control that data is you know, a, a product decision that we made. Yeah. And then to give you certain examples from Kindle Direct Publishing. So part of what we do is to democratize book publishing for people like you and me. So you aren't dependent on like a huge publisher, small or big, to publish or sell your content and distribute them to masses. So uh, part of what we do when we, we use machine learning is to really parse through the content that comes in and then A, either help the publisher make the right decision and then B, protecting the Amazon consumer from the content that may not align with our policies. So if you've used it for like detecting content appropriateness use case, or you've used it for like information protection rights or um, IP rights or DMCAs and things like that. So, and then these can be really nuanced because you have to like parse these random characters, people put together books in form of both images and text to derive meaningful insight in a way that you could finally make the decision to either sell or not sell on Amazon. And given the scale, it is not possible to, for a human to do every single of these reviews by themselves. So it, so it is really important for us to like do this at scale. And then use the human decision power or judgment for like edge cases while automating away the simple job. So humans are obviously still very much needed in this world of technology and training data sets and perfecting algorithms. As machines get smarter and smarter and smarter and the data sets get better and more refined, will we ever get to the point where we no longer need human beings to step in? Will we hit that point in certain jobs or tasks? We've talked about this a bit, but I do believe that pure AI is a science fiction. And I don't believe we will come to a point where functioning and quality machines would need some level of human intervention. We do already have working examples of pragmatic AI, like aircraft autopilot systems or just like grab and go stores. But even they are assisted by humans in some capacity. So I do believe the future is collaborative and it's not siloed by one party or the other. Great. And you're both women, successful women in the technology industry. And Kate, you were in finance before. Both are very male-dominated worlds, as we know. Can you tell us about some of the biggest challenges you faced being a woman? And then maybe some of the success stories. Like how is how has being a woman helped you in your career? So I would say that. The biggest challenge I faced, especially in the beginning, is like just building the confidence in myself and dealing with unconscious bias. Um, I wish we lived in a world where being a woman wasn't advantaged, but I, I still believe like there are various resources available to women in tech industry that one could consider to be advantageous. Um, things like women-only conferences, great, Grace Hopper is a great example or fundraisers or VCs who only invest in women or workshops or coaching programs or even employee resource groups. Personally, I've leveraged them to my advantage because like that's 
I felt like those are places where you as a woman are heard and you can resonate with other people's problems and you can form a network of people going through the same journey or same struggle. So to start with advantages, I think there are a good number of advantages. You end up standing out no matter what, I mean, you know, which is a good advantage and a disadvantage and feels like a privilege, but also feels like a burden. And I think, you know, some, you know, it's, it's a pro and a con, like so many things, but I think an advantage is you stand out. And I, the con, the, the under, the opposite of that is that you don't stand out, you know, and you're trying to find ways to stand out, but you know, that when I do feel like when I, I, when I have an opinion to say, it gets, it gets heard. I don't know if it always gets, you know, listened to in the same way or acknowledged the same way, but like, I think it, it sounds different coming from a woman. It gets delivered differently coming from a woman. Um, and you end up standing out to people too, to go back to the standing out theme uh, at, at conferences where you see the same women over and over again. And particularly I was at a, a mortgage conference and which is also male dominant. Mortgage tech is like super, super male dominated. Um, and there was just very few women there. And so we ended up running into each other in the bathroom and, and you like forge relationships quite quickly because it's rare. And so I think you could see it as a negative where there's, oh, there's just so few women, or you can take advantage of it and, and, and really connect with the people that you're, that are in this group. Can you give some examples in your own work where diversity, be it race, gender, background, uh, is important in the products that you're creating? It goes back to our mission being about unlocking financial freedom for everyone, like underline the everyone. I mean, I think that means that as an organization, we do have an obligation to turn our product on its head and like question some of the assumptions that we're making about how we're building, what we're doing. It gives, it's, it's a great call to action for the organization to devote resources to thinking about this as a problem. Because the reality is, you, you're always making biases and you're always coming up with shortcuts in order to get to, you know, MVP as quickly as possible. But if you build the MVP, you're building it for a segment of people. And then there's a, you know, a, a segment of people that are unser- underserved by that. And that's frankly why Plaid exists. Yeah. I mean, Sam, uh, like you've mentioned, we all know, we all know of automated systems that went haywire due to lack of diversity, be it the job screening app, Google photos, seatbelts, et cetera. It, we all understand that it is critical to have diverse perspectives baked in from the beginning when building a system, and it shouldn't be considered an after, aftermath or an afterthought. But like Kate says, like shortcuts happen all the time. No matter how much we try, we want to get to an MVP as soon as possible, and there are consequences to that. Um, I, I can't think of a particular example per se, but I would, I would share this up. Uh, scenario we had where we were to like we were looking to flag transactions when someone was trying to log in and one of the things we did like to make sure our systems were free of biases or at least our biases were in check is to make sure we weren't like targeting certain groups or we weren't giving a certain decision to a certain group of people every single time so there was like a lot of even like human-led effort that went into even creating the testing data to make sure our systems didn't favor one or the other or didn't have 
unintended consequences for one group of people. So, I mean, this is like, this is probably an extreme example, but even things like ad recommendations or personalization, you can't build a ML-based system in today's world that does not factor into the diverse perspectives and biases. Your product would not survive the world. We spoke last week about some of the biases that are built into the data sets. Um, one example was in 2015, Google Photos um, tagged a, an African-American man as a gorilla because they didn't have enough uh, photos of black men that were tagged properly as, mm -hmm. as black African-American men. So, you know, that's, those are the kind of biases that are just, you know, frightening and have to be checked um, as we're building out these technologies. And I guess humans are gonna be part of this for the long future, not the near future, <laughs> the extended future. So um, one last question, and then we're gonna turn it over to the students for Q and A. Uh, wonderful group of super smart and accomplished students here today in engineering in the business schools at Lehigh. What piece of advice, one piece of advice would you offer them in their careers as, they, as they're starting out in the tech and business worlds? One is when you get your offer, negotiate it. You, they've already decided they want you they're not giving you the best, best offer initially. It's just like human nature. They're expecting you to negotiate. And a lot of, I think women, but generally first people en entering the workforce, particularly in tech, you think, oh, I got the job. I can't like rock the boat, you know, negotiate, ask for more. The thing that matters to you, whether that's cash or equity or whatever, I'd say, you know, whatever, negotiate. Second, I'd say that Careers are long and the world is small. Industries are small. So, you know, do right by people and take time to connect with people. And I think that's obviously tricky in today's remote work environment, but great excuses to just like chat or debrief something or, you know, to have a retro or reflect on a meeting went well, didn't go well, just so that you can like bond with people because people are what make work fun. They're also people who will probably like, you know, make your life easier from a work perspective. But then beyond that, you know, you might leave a company and go to another. And that's like a lot how technology operates is moving from job to job to job. And, you know, be good to the people around you because you don't know who's going to hire you at the next one or vouch for you in the next one. So people matter for a lot of reasons, but it definitely makes the work more fun. But, you know, find ways to connect with people. Thank you. Great advice. And I love the negotiation. We have, we need to have a whole class on how to negotiate. Um, <laughs> we'll discuss that in the future. Uh, <laughs> Archie, what, what's your, what are your two? Yeah, I mean, everything Kate said, plus I'll add just one or two things on top of that. I would say that the most underrated skill in the industry and people you work with is it that be easy to work with and ask for help. I cannot tell you the number of times I would have personally avoided hard conversations or hard situations if I had asked for help like way before in the beginning. So just forget about the inhibitions. You're new to the company or new to the project, like find whatever excuse you need to, but ask for help. And then being kind goes a really, really, really long way. So think about anytime you have a new team member, or anytime you have an intern, think about the time when you were that new person on the team or when you didn't know about something. So just like be kind, be grounded, and don't 
worry about asking for help. Go for it. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center in San Francisco. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. I hope that you enjoy learning from Kate and Archie about using technology to augment the user experience. If you appreciated today's conversation, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content.